So welcome to episode three of Library Discoveries. In this episode, we have another London library book, and this one is called Stalin's Englishman by Andrew Lowney. So Stalin's Englishman, of course, is Guy Burgess, one of the Cambridge Five spies who attended Cambridge University in the 30s and uh, got involved in communist uh, ideology, Communist Party of Great Britain and so on, and became a spy for the KGB against not only Britain but also the West because many of these, including Burgess himself, managed to make it all the way to America as part of their British role, which enabled them to spy on the Americans too. So, as is often the case with the Five Eyes, if a mole or a spy gets in involved for the other side, it can expose all five countries. So Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Britain and America. And that's exactly what happened here with Guy Burgess. Now, one of the reasons I was particularly keen on this book, and I have borrowed it twice, is that Burgess is seen as the renegade, the party animal, the social beast, uh, in a way that the others weren't. Maybe Blunt was, but the others uh, were seen as very serious, very worthy individuals, very of their time, somewhat sinister because they were so cold and detached. None of these things apply to Burgess. He was a drinker, a smoker, all kinds of drug rumours. Even for the time, he was absolutely outrageous. He drove at 90 miles an hour everywhere he went. His personal life tottered around and staggered around just like he did. Burgess has therefore been seen as a figure of fun, a harmless individual. He is the guy who met Coral Brown in Moscow when she was touring there uh, as a a part of a play that she was in, and they became uh, acquainted, They, they became friends, and that became the subject of Alan Bennett's play, An Englishman Abroad, which is fascinating in itself because Bennett sees the spies differently to many others. There are people who are in the secret world or of the secret world who were around at that time, like David Cornwell, John le Carré, who were very affected by particularly Philby, but also the others too. And Bennett, as an outsider, but somebody, a playwright of the left, clearly, does not see them in quite the same way. He sees them as humans, first and foremost, and victims, partially, but also sees their vilification and hounding over decades by the press, which actually goes on today, even though all of them have now died. Alan Bennett sees that as as an overreaction. He says that, you know, the spies didn't really cause that much damage, except Philby, who's been linked to the Rosenbergs. Philby says, well, the Rosenbergs were so junior that, you know, America executed the Rosenbergs, not me. It wasn't my fault. All of these kind of things, which this far into the future, can be very difficult to unravel. But Lowney does a great job here. Um, He portrays Burgess as a a lead figure in the five. So I think most outsiders would say that Philby was was the main guy. And in many ways, in terms of his uh, seniority, he became very senior in MI6. Philby was was the leader, stole the most stuff, betrayed the most people, probably caused people's deaths. Philby was the main guy from the outside and from the press's respect. Then you've got Blunt, her, who Anthony Blunt, whose amazing KGB nickname, which was meant to protect his identity, was Tony. In other words, it was his first name. Blunt was pilloried because he didn't get outed until 79, which was years after he'd admitted it, 15 years or so after he'd admitted what he'd done. Um, it came back into the press in the late 70s for whatever reason, and he became pilloried you know, all over again. And the press also hounded the close associates of these people, which being the top of the British establishment, included some very senior figures indeed, not least to say the heads of MI5 and MI6, also the Rothschilds and other people as well, very close to them. So these five guys 
we can't say five guys anymore, can we? These five, the Cambridge Five, were deeply enmeshed in British society, certainly in the secret side, but also in Westminster politics too. Philby and others had made a name for themselves in America as, as very able spies. They hoodwinked the Americans quite convincingly. Key to Britain's post-war intelligence gathering, they were all exposing Western secrets to, to Russia. Therefore, everybody who isn't closely involved in this story sees them as the bad guys, the baddies. But when you start reading about them, and when you've read about Blunt and McLean and Burgess and Philby, and everybody forgets about Cairn Cross, you realise that they were idealists, they were communists, but they were communists at a time before the Second World War, when in their eyes, there was no middle ground. You couldn't be a liberal capitalist in 1930s Britain. You had to either be a fascist or a communist. And if you were a fascist, you were on the side of Hitler, which wasn't great. And if you were a communist, you were on the side of Russia, which was, of course, at that time, an ally. And they, they became closer during the war. And, and then obviously, we know what happened after the war with the Cold War. But during the Second World War, Russia were an official ally. They were on our side, effectively which is incredible as an 80s child to comprehend. But nevertheless, Russia and America and Britain defeated the Nazis. If you can cast your mind back to the 30s, then you're older than me. If you can imagine yourself into 30s Britain, you have a global recession going on. Well, that's not too different from today. You have a belligerent Germany threatening the whole of Europe and the rest of the world beyond, even as far as Japan. You upper middle class British establishment figure at Cambridge University of all places, and you feel in your tobacco haze and brandy fog that you have to choose between Hitler or Stalin. You've got to say that even a right-wing, right-leaning British individual would be very unlikely to choose Hitler. And the people who did, Edward VIII, have never lived it down. Their reputation's never recovered. In a situation where all of your friends are left-leaning or even communist, the bad guys, the fascist, the right-winger, it's almost a no-brainer that you would move to the left. Even if you didn't really feel that strongly about it, you could see how the default position might be lean to the left, at the very least. And if you were idealistic and, and hot-headed and passionate like Burgess was, you would definitely support the Russians. Because the only future you can see is one that is either run by Germany or it's run by Russia. You don't see America back in the 30s and 40s as a leader of the free world. All the five chose Russia. Their loyalties were tested at various stages. They were recruited at different stages. Philby was not recruited until he'd left Cambridge University. And, and when war came and then when Stalin's actions and activities became more widely known, they all questioned what they'd done. None of them really recanted or publicly repented, shall we say. They did what they did because they thought it was the best and right thing for themselves and for Britain. And that's the thing that keeps catching me here is that they were not traitors in their own eyes by their own definition they were british people yes communist sympathizers before communism became the bogey that it is now and, and became in america in particular at a time when you either were on the side of the hitlerites as they were called at the time or on the side of sensibleness it's a virtually a no-brainer and once you've gone through that thought process which i think is probably similar to Alan Bennett's, because he's a sort of similar era, shall we say, maybe a little bit younger than these guys, but 
uh, same kind of era, shall we say, you start to see it from their point of view. And I think this is quite dangerous because then you start to think, well, okay, what about all the other baddies in, in history that we've seen? Maybe they weren't as quite as bad as we thought they were. Accepting that this is a tricky path, you can then feel objective about how you approach the Guy Burgess story. And I think it's quite clear that, that Lowney sympathises with Burgess to an extent. He certainly is in, under no illusion about how dangerous Burgess was, both to himself physically, also to his friends, because he was just had no filter and would say whatever was on his mind, especially when he was drunk, which was virtually every day. And he was this magnetic, enigmatic, charismatic character who would pull people into his orbit very easily. Men, women straight, gay, either thought he was kind of a bit like a tramp and a bit disgusting and a bit smelly, depending on what era it, it was that they met him, or they thought he was incredible and brilliant and fabulous and funny. And even the ones who thought he was a bit trampy had a soft spot for him, that there are not that many people who really didn't like him. How did Burgess and the others get into the KGB? And according to Lowney, we have some interesting facts, which I didn't know. And when I say I didn't know them, I did research these five for my spy walks back in 2017. So I do know a lot about them. I'm not starting from the perspective of somebody who knows nothing. And I think anybody who reads uh, Stalin's Englishman will, will probably know something about these five. We find out that it was Guy Burgess who recruited Anthony Blunt, which is a surprise to me because I saw Blunt as the recruiting sergeant. He is described very often as, oh, Blunt was the guy who recruited everybody. He was the recruiting sergeant. He was older than the others, this, that, and the other. But in fact, it was Burgess who recruited Blunt. And then Blunt did go on to become a recruiting sergeant. But it was Burgess that found Blunt and recommended him to Deutsch and the other KGB guys who were running this aspiring. The term recruiting sergeant that I've used there almost on autopilot dates back to the 18th century. And I like it because it can imply trickery. The recruiting sergeants in the 18th century for the army, navy, press gang people, blackmail them, hit them, trick them, tell them any story they felt they needed to tell to get these guys to join the army and navy and, and fight against whoever it was at the time. And I think that Deutsch did lie, trick, exaggerate to get these guys to come into the KGB, or to at least to be act as double agents. And it's quite clear to me that Burgess was involved in that deception. You know, he told Blunt what Blunt needed to hear. Then we get to the others. Let's start with Cairncross. Now, Cairncross is interesting because he was the fifth man. He was not discovered until after Burgess and MacLean had escaped, and his villainy, shall we say, was kept secret. He was allowed to emigrate from the UK, and he was, as a result of that, effectively not spoken about afterwards. So Cairncross's identity came about very late on and it was not probably known for many, many decades. So Cairncross, the fifth man, the fifth one to be discovered, actually disappeared uh, in 1952, which was a year or so after, um, if I've got the timelines right, after Burgess and MacLean got on the ferry to St. Marlow. Let's go back again. So Cairncross, Burgess recruited Cairncross and Cairncross thought Burgess was straight. Now I say that with a incredulity in my voice because it is always assumed that apart from Philby, all of the Cambridge Five were homosexual. Uh, that's not the case, certainly not in Cairncross's case. This line of homosexuality, betrayal, the KGB, Britain, the Cambridge Five is a very deep line. And it's partly because at the time their behaviour was 
uh, illegal in Britain. It was not seen as a lifestyle or a, a, a valid way to behave. It was a criminal matter. It was very much under the radar, very much behind the scenes. And many people think that the pressures that that way of life put people under back then helped at least, if not caused, their defection to Moscow. We have uh, Cairn Cross recruited by Burgess. Burgess did not recruit Philby. That was Deutsch himself. And then Philby recommended Maclean. So the only guys that we can say out of these five that Burgess recruited was Blunt and Cairncross. And then it was Blunt that recruited Michael Strait, who became famous for other reasons later on. It was actually Burgess who recruited two of the other four. It's not a bad record. And partly this was due to the Cambridge connection. But of course, Philby had already left Cambridge. We start to look at what happened to these five young men, little more than boys, as they made their way. Philby went into the Secret Service very early. But Burgess went to the BBC. He was flamboyant. He was gregarious. And he went to the BBC and spent many years trying to get in. And I think this tells you a lot about the British establishment at that time possibly to a lesser extent today, that I was not aware of coming from the North, coming from a technology background, a science background, effectively, where you get into a job or an interview based on your exam results and maybe a little glance at what you did last. Really getting into the BBC back then was about who you knew, I think it's fair to say. Burgess had a stack of reference letters from friends in high places. It was a real eye-opener to me that these letters would be used to get jobs in the way that they were. And he get he get knocked back for various reasons. He was seen as not calm and stable enough to be on the air, but he was seen as a very gifted producer and organiser. And I think that served him well in his spying career as well. Burgess arrives at the BBC, starts a career as a journalist, producer, broadcaster, becomes spying and the pressures and the, the whole lifestyle unravels on him. But interesting to me that Burgess, who is the party animal, are highly regarded by many, many people. Very few of his friends or associates had a negative word to say about him. They all agreed he was unstable and he became less stable as the years went on, leading up to his final escape to France on the ferry, of all things, with Maclean, of all people, who was nothing like Burgess. And the two names were hardly ever seen together until that day in 1951 when they escaped. And that's the extract I'll be reading in a second. So in the chapter called The Final Week, we see in great detail the preparations that Burgess in particular, but also Maclean, were making before they fled to France. And it's Burgess that arrives at Maclean's house to drive him to the ferry port. So we pick up the Lowney narrative just for a paragraph or two here. Shortly after Maclean arrived home, Burgess drove through the gates of Beckenshaw, the four-bedroomed house that the Macleans had bought on their return from Cairo, and was introduced as Roger Stiles. The name was taken from two Agatha Christie books, The Mysterious Affair at Stiles and The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. The two men had a quick supper and then told Melinda they had to meet a man in Andover. Whilst Burgess waited in the hall, Maclean said goodbye to his two young sons before leaving at about 9pm. Taking turns driving, the two men sped the 90 miles along the back roads to Southampton. Just before midnight, the car screeched to a halt on Southampton Dock. Abandoning it, they ran up the gangplank as it was being raised. Back Monday, shouted Burgess. In fact, the two men had not gone unnoticed. Maclean, whose name was on a watch list, had been clocked by an immigration official 
and he immediately rang MI5's operational headquarters in London, Leckenfield House, where a number of officers were still planning the Monday interview. Alerts were put out to British intelligence officers on the continent, but the French police, for fear of a leak, were not informed. Without a warrant to arrest the two men, there was little the British authorities could do. And we leave Lowney's narrative there. Those paragraphs are full of meaning uh, implied and on the surface as well. So for me personally, Leckenfield House stands out as being the office uh, in, in Curzon Street where John le Carré worked. Many, many famous spies, Guy Little worked in the past. And of course, Burgess and McLean would have known that building quite well. Uh, today, of course, it's... Uh, an ordinary office block, serviced offices. Other interesting thing from that is is partly how amateurish the whole thing was. Using names like Agatha Christie, victims, screeching around at 90 miles an hour. And of course, it was screeching around at 90 miles an hour that had cost Burgess his placing in America, or at least led to the beginning of the end of that placement. He was just seen as being too unreliable. And this even went through in, into their escape. Many people think that Burgess was simply the chauffeur, the organiser to get McLean out of the country. But essentially, Burgess and McLean slipped under the nose of British intelligence, even though they'd been tipped off by the Americans that these guys were a bit dodgy. And it's exactly what happened with the Philby case as well. And as we've seen earlier in this episode, it's not long, whenever you're talking about the Cambridge Five, that the stories tend to bleed and merge and blend together in some ways. So the Burgess and McLean escape fiasco is interesting because it means that forevermore after that day, the two men were seen as almost one guy, you know, Burgess and McLean, McLean and Burgess. It's never Guy, it's never Donald, it's Burgess and McLean. And where I grew up in Beverly, there was an ice cream shop, a very successful ice cream shop called Burgess's. It's interesting that two guys who, who had virtually nothing in common except uh, their politics, escaped the UK together, travelled across Europe together, arrived in Russia together and stayed in Russia for the rest of their lives because it was so politically and physically difficult to get back from Russia once you'd left in such circumstances. So there we have it. Um, we have one book here just about Burgess. I have another book uh, for a future episode just about Maclean and there's other books about Philby and Blunt, hardly anything about Cairncross. Every one of these books talks about every one of the, the Cambridge Five. And I think that's how it should be as well. Thanks, Paul. So now this is the segment where we take a look at the book as an object. The cover of this book is burgundy red. Got some rubbing and water damage to the outside. But the most striking thing about it is that it's the spine and the jackets are held on with sellotape. So this is the newest book that we've seen. It dates from 2015. It came to the library pretty much straight from the publisher, but it's been thrashed. Uh, it's been borrowed by 65 different people in that short time, in the last five years, and uh, it's been heavily used. Now, this book, I think when it came out, it was certainly the first book I'd read that was only about Burgess, or at least mainly about Burgess. There have been others in the past, but a long time ago, and many of them, many of the anecdotes and the stories that I'd read made Burgess out to be the fool. And I think this is perhaps the first book that makes Burgess out to be the ringleader, actually. So I think it's a very substantial book. It's a significant book. The, the wear and tear on it reflects that. I think this has been heavily used, read, reread, quoted from, as I'm doing, because it presents Guy Burgess in a way that other people didn't. It does still have the truth of his alcoholism, his 
party lifestyle, all things which we would recognize in the modern day. His behavior in certain respects was even more extreme than you might expect today because people were more extreme, uh, certainly in the 30s and 40s for obvious reasons, but also into the 50s too. But there we go. For whatever reason, this book has been thoroughly trashed and I think it's good. You know, as Stig Abel says, better to have a book that's thrashed and trashed and has a story. And that's why we're interested in these books because they come with a story. And I'm talking about the story of the object, not the story of what's on the pages inside. So it's held together with tape. It needs rebinding already. Uh, and therefore, it's in worse condition by a long way than Baden-Powell, which is from 1938. So a 2015 book had been heavily borrowed, heavily used. There's no barcode, uh, which was a surprise. Maybe they've already been overtaken by technology. But as an object, it's not as fascinating as the Baden-Powell book because... It is newer. It doesn't smell like an old library book because it's not. It's only five years old. And I'm going to look into for a future episode whether the smell is a function of how paper is made now or is it simply time. I'm sure that back in the 30s and 40s, the library was full of cigar smoke. It's no longer the case. There's something about the Baden-Powell book that smelt right. And this smells like a new book. Stalin's Englishman, Andrew Lowney, Hodder and Stoughton, 2015 thank you for listening to library discoveries if you enjoyed this podcast please consider donating to help with our hosting costs we do not carry any adverts of our own and we rely on donations to continue to do this and to read more about the books featured in library discoveries please visit our website librarydiscoveries.uk Thank you for listening. See you next week.